invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 12 to 21 this evening. I want to begin by asking you how much of an impact can one person make? How much influence can one person have? Well, if you've sat through your history classes and paid attention, you know that the answer is a lot that there have been historical figures who have had great influence, in fact, global influence. Uh, not a lot, only a few, but it is possible for just one person to have an effect on the entire world. A few years ago, Time Magazine put out an article entitled, Who's Biggest? The 100 Most Significant Figures in History. The 100 Most significant, most influential, most impactful people who have ever lived. If you came up with that list, what would you say? Go ahead and shout it out. Who would be your top people to influence this world? Steve Jobs, all right. Anything else? Jesus. Guess we got to shut it down after that one. Here's what Time said. Their top 10. Number 10, Thomas Jefferson. Number 9, Alexander the Great. 8, Aristotle. 7, Adolf Hitler. 6, George Washington. Now in the top 5, number 5 was Abraham Lincoln. Number four, William Shakespeare. Number three, Mohammed. Number two, Napoleon. And number one, Jesus. Amen and amen, brother. <laughs> I guess given my limited historical knowledge, I would for the most part agree with this list. As a Christian, I'm happy that Jesus was number one, but I would say that there's at least one person missing from this list. There's at least one glaring omission. Number two shouldn't be Napoleon. Number two, right after Jesus at number one, should be a man named Adam, the first man. Because Adam's life affected every single person who has ever lived and will ever live. What's more, he has influenced you in a deeper, more significant way than any other person on this list. Alexander the Great influenced the geography of our world today. George Washington and Abraham Lincoln influenced the America that we live in today. William Shakespeare influenced the way that we speak and the words that come out of our mouth today. Napoleon influenced politics and military strategy as we know it today, but Adam influences you personally, spiritually, and eternally. 
And unless you understand just how Adam has influenced you, and unless you understand how you can be released from the influence of Adam, you will suffer eternal separation from God. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5 if you're not there yet. Uh, Paul has just finished explaining amazing truths about our salvation. He's talked about justification, peace with God, access to God, a hope of spending eternity in glory with God, joy even in our suffering, strength to persevere through suffering, the display of God's love who died for us while we were yet sinners, reconciliation, salvation from the wrath of God, and assurance that God's love is permanent, that his love is simply a love that will not let us go. That's what we've seen in verses 1 to 11. And now in verses 12 to 21, Paul dives deeper into the theology of our salvation. He takes an even closer look at the interworkings of our salvation. And here's what he writes. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and reading down to verse 21, the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass bought, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a word used in this passage 13 times. I wonder if you caught it. It is critical, so important. It is the word one. One. One man, one decision, one bite of a forbidden fruit. One sin changed everything. One man, one decision, 
one act of righteousness, one sacrifice changed everything. What this passage is doing at its core is comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus, the first man with the perfect man. First up, Adam. Let's look at, first of all, the bad news of Adam in verses 12 to 14. Even after reading verses 12 to 14 just once, it's not hard to see that they contain some bad news. These verses are dominated by the concepts of sin and death. You see, verses 12 to 14 is set up in contrast to verses 15 to 21. Verses 12 to 14 is the black sky on which the stars of God's grace shine. Now, verses 12 to 14 is the black velvet on which the diamond of God's grace shines. So let's first look at the bad news so that we can see in verses 15 to 21 just how good the good news is. In verse 12, we see that sin enters the world through the one man, Adam. God explicitly tells Adam that he may eat of the fruit of all the trees of the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does he do? He disobeys. He breaks the command, introducing sin into the world. Then look at that second phrase in verse 12, and death through sin. Death arrives on the coattails of sin. God warned Adam in Genesis 2.17, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's what happens. As soon as Adam ate the fruit, he began to die. His physical nature started to change. His body began to decay. The clock on his life started ticking. And now his fate would be to become the dust from which he was created. But Adam's physical death was just a sign and just a symbol of an even more significant death. It was just a sign and a symbol of his spiritual death, eternal separation from God, banishment from the presence of God, a separation from God and a banishment from God that Adam and Eve already got a taste of when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So Adam's sin introduced physical and spiritual death into the world, but it gets worse. It gets so much worse. Verse 12, and so death spread to all men. The death of Adam was not confined to himself. It spread, and now it's universal. A drop of cyanide was placed into the glass of water, and now the whole glass is contaminated. Death spreads to all of Adam's children. It spreads to the entire human race. And we're reminded of this every time we go past a cemetery, every time we step foot into a hospital, every time we attend a funeral, death is inevitable. As an ancient Near East proverb states, the black camel death kneels once at each door and each mortal must mount to return nevermore. 
or as Paul says more bluntly in verse 17, death reigns. Death is king, and all must bow down before it. So this passage answers the question, why is death in this world? Well, it's because of Adam's fall. The name Adam in Hebrew simply means man. And it's a fitting definition of his name because he acts as a representative for all of mankind. In our country, we elect politicians to represent us. In fact, some of these politicians are actually called representatives. And these politicians who represent us do things that affect us, and they make decisions that affect us, even if we may not agree. For instance, if the president declares war tomorrow, guess what? Our entire country is now at war. The decision of one representative affects everyone else. And so Adam is responsible for bringing in spiritual and physical death to all mankind because he is our representative but hold on. Before you start complaining that that's not fair, before you start to question whether that's really the case, whether that's really even possible, read the last phrase of verse 12. Death spread to all men because all sinned. You're responsible too. You brought this death on yourself through your own sin. So wait a minute, which one is it? Is it Adam or is it me? Is it Adam's sin or is it my sin? Paul simply answers with both. Both. He puts these two truths that are in tension with each other side by side, parallel to each other, and is content to just let them lie there. And he makes no attempt to reconcile these two truths. We're guilty as members of Adam's race, and we're guilty because we have personally committed sin. Our president has declared war against God, but you have declared war against God as well. We're doubly guilty. Adam brought on this death, and so did we. So, even if you're not buying into this whole Adam is our representative thing, if you're saying that that's just not fair, it's not just, it's not even possible, you have to at least look at that phrase at the end of verse 12, because all sin. You cannot escape the guilt that you have because of your own sin. All sin. This is universal. Then in verse 13, Paul further explains this universality of sin. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, Paul's anticipating an objection here. He's making an argument, and he's pretending someone is objecting. And this pretend objection to him is, wait a minute, Paul. You can't say that all sinned. You can't say that sin is universal because there's one group of people that didn't sin, and it's those people who lived from the time of Adam to Moses, because they didn't even have the law. So how can they break God's law if they didn't even have God's law? That's the objection. But Paul emphatically answers in verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. There was definitely sin 
before Moses gave the Ten Commandments and wrote down all the other commandments in Genesis to Deuteronomy. But Paul grants, as he continues in verse 13, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Okay, I'm going to grant you something. I'm going to grant you that technically, technically, there was no sin during this time from Adam to Moses. Technically, you wouldn't call it sin because you're right. Sin, by definition, is disobedience to God's law, and they didn't have God's law, so you're right. But there was still wickedness. There was still evil. There was still rebellion against God, even though these people didn't have the law. Take Cain, for example. Just because there was no command that explicitly said, thou shalt not bash your brother's head in with a stone, doesn't mean that Cain is off the hook. You can think about Jacob. Just because there was no explicit command that said, thou shalt not deceive your old father by putting on animal skins and wearing your brother's clothes, that doesn't mean that Jacob is off the hook. Just because there was no law in Noah's day doesn't mean that they were off the hook when in Genesis 6-5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin is obviously there before Moses gives the law, but technically you just wouldn't call it sin. But the people were wicked and they knew it. They were rebellious against God, and they knew it. If you go back to Romans 2, you know that these people had a conscience, and the law of God was written on their hearts. They were defying God with their wickedness, and they were fully aware. And that's why verse 14 begins, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death didn't take a break during this time. Death kept reigning because there was still sin happening at this time. And as we saw, where there is sin, death rides in on its coattails. Keep reading in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Those people, uh, those whose sinning was not, in the, was not like the transgression of Adam, is another way of identifying this people that we just talked about, those people who lived just after Adam all the way to Moses. See, Adam had a definite law given to him. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Don't, don't do that. So he had, a, he had a command that he was supposed to follow, but he broke that command. And after him, all the way until the time of Moses, there were no more explicit commands, but as we saw, these people still sinned, technically not called sin, and so that's why it says that their transgression was not like the transgression of Adam. It's different. They sinned without a specific command. Adam sinned with a specific command. But all of them still sinned, and all were still subject to death. So, deep breath, after all that, the conclusion, the main point Paul is trying to make here is that sin is universal. That all have 
sin, a confirmation of Romans 3.23, which he wrote earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because everyone has sinned, death is universal, both physical and eternal death, and that, GOC, is not good news. That is very, very bad news. Everyone has sinned, and so everyone will die physically only to enter an eternal spiritual death, separation from God in hell. Everybody, even these ones who live from Adam to Moses, Moses don't, don't get out on a technicality. But then verse 14 ends on a note of hope. Adam is a type of the one who was to come. A type is a foreshadow or a prefigure of something else. A type means that there's some kind of connection, some kind of similarity between the two. Adam is a type of Jesus. How? Well, both acted as representatives for humanity. And both made a decision. Um, both did an action that had an effect on many, many people. Because of Adam, we need another Adam. We need another representative who will undo what the first Adam did. So Adam is act one, the problem. Jesus is now act two, the solution. Adam exits stage right, and Jesus enters, stands center stage, with a curtain darkened behind him and the spotlight solely on him, and for the rest of the passage, the focus is now on Jesus. Now let's now turn and see the good news of Jesus. We see that in verses 15 to 21. We saw the black midnight sky. Let's now look at the stars shining bright. We saw the black velvet. Now let's look at the dazzling diamond of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the good news. We're going to divide up verses 15 to 21 into three parts. Now let's first look at the better outcome. A better outcome, verses 15 to 17. Now let me give you the better outcome up front. It is justification and life. This is the better outcome, justification and life. We've already seen the worse outcome, the bad outcome, sin and death. Now let's see the opposite outcome, the opposite result, the opposite consequence that we have in Christ, which is justification and life. We see the good and bad outcomes uh, set in contrast to each other at the very beginning of verse 15 and at the very beginning of verse 16. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Then verse 16, and the free gift is not like the results of that one man's sin. The free gift is not like the trespass in that the outcomes are polar opposites. 
So let's look at this free gift in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Uh, One thing that might sound kind of funny to you, one thing that might hit your ears wrong, is that phrase, free gift. It's redundant, right? A gift is already free by definition. It would be weird if I gave you a Christmas present all wrapped up nice with a pretty bow and said, oh, just so you know, you don't owe me anything for this. It's redundant. A gift by definition is already free, but the the Greek here is redundant in order to place emphasis here. This gift is totally, completely, absolutely free. Jesus says, I have done something for you. I have acted out of the kindness of my heart to give you a gift. And you don't have to pay a dime. In fact, you couldn't pay it. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't earn it. So we say, praise God, that it is a gift. For emphasis, a free gift. Well, not only is this called a free gift, it is called in verse 15, the grace of God and the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. This is grace. When Brandon works at Taco Bell, he gets a paycheck. When the senior class wipes the floor with all of y'all in the mini basketball hoop, they get awarded points. They win points. When you do something good in school or in academia in some way, you get an award. But when someone who cannot work, cannot win, and cannot achieve, is given something, that is grace. And at the end of verse 15, it says, this grace abounded to the many. This grace is going to have a far reach. It's going to affect many people. How? Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Here's the contrast. Adam's sin brings condemnation. The free gift in Jesus Christ brings justification. We've seen this word justification multiple times in chapter 5 already. To be declared right. To be declared innocent to be pronounced right in God's eyes, which is amazing. As you look at the end of verse 16, because the free gift follows many trespasses. You got a lot of sins. I have a lot of sins. Many sins. Many, many sins. But following our life of many sins, we're declared right. We're justified in God's sight. As bad as the outcome is of Adam's sin, it is reversible. The divine judge's verdict of guilty, condemned, is actually reversible. 
it actually can be undone, and it's undone in justification. Justification, on the other hand, is a verdict that is irreversible. It's permanent. The judge declares you right, and the court is dismissed. That's why we call justification a once-for-all act of God in declaring you right. Once for all, once for all time. Being justified is a better outcome, not only in that it's clearly the outcome that you want, but also in that it is completely irreversible. It is permanent. So, that's justification. Let's now look at life, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump into the outcome of life, I want you to notice something critical. Look at that word in the middle of verse 17, receive. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, you must receive this gift. Oh, it's free, but you must receive this gift. Otherwise, you're still identified with Adam. You must receive this gift. Otherwise, you're still under condemnation. You must receive this gift. Otherwise, you're still under the reign of death. Have you received this gift? I'm not asking if the other people at GOC have received this gift. I'm not asking if you hang out with people who have received this gift. I'm asking if you've received it. Have you come before God and confessed that you have nothing to offer him? That you could never be a good person on your own? That you could never be righteous on your own efforts? that you could never earn your own salvation, but you come before him with empty hands held up high to receive his gift. Have you received the gift tonight? Because if you have, then the outcome gets even better. End of verse 17. You will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In the same way that the concept of death is used in both a physical and spiritual sense, life here is also both physical and spiritual. Physical. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of our resurrection. Yes, we will die just like everybody else, but then we will be resurrected to have glorified, perfect bodies. No longer any sickness, no longer any ailments, no longer any disabilities, no longer any weakness, but to live with this glorified body on the new earth with God forever. And then spiritual. Spiritual death meant separation from God. Spiritual life means that 
we are now brought close to God. We are brought near to him, living with him for all eternity in that new earth, which is described in Revelation 21.3 as the dwelling place of God. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer separation from God, but togetherness and fellowship with God. So this is the better outcome. Uh, Generally speaking, the better outcome is a free gift. It is grace. Specifically, the better outcome is justification and life. Now let's now turn to a better decision. A better decision. Verses 18 to 19. Paul now backs up to the decision that led to these outcomes. Again, let me just give you the better decision up front. It is obedience. Obedience. The better decision was the decision to obey. The worst decision, the bad decision, was disobedience on the part of Adam. Verse 18 is a summary of what's already been said, and in many ways, verse 18 is a summary of the entire passage. Let's read it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. But then in verse 19, Paul further dissects this trespass that led to condemnation. And he further dissects this act of righteousness that leads to justification and life. Uh, this, this worse outcome, generally speaking, is a trespass. Specifically, it is an act of disobedience. The better outcome Uh, The better decision, rather, uh, is, generally speaking, a righteous act. Specifically, it is an act of obedience. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. God tells Adam, don't eat from the tree, and Adam eats from the tree. He disobeys bad decision that leads to a bad outcome. God sent Jesus to be the savior of mankind, and he obeys. Good decision with a good outcome. The obedience of Jesus is captured in Philippians 2, 6-8, which says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Unlike Adam, Jesus makes the right decision. He obeys, and his act of obedience leads to many being made righteous justified. So we've seen the better outcome. We've seen the better decision. And now let's turn to a better victory. A better victory in verses 20 to 21. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 20 begins by saying that the law came in to increase 
the trespass. Well, how does that work? How does having the law of God, the commandments of God, make you sin more? Well, there's two ways. First, as we already saw, when the Mosaic law comes in, it clearly defines sin. It names sin, sin. Remember we said that before the law came from Adam to Moses, there definitely was sin. It just wasn't called sin. But then when the law comes in, then you have the measuring stick. Then you see just how far you fall. See, the law puts sin directly under your nose so you can smell it stink. The law focuses the microscope so that you can see crystal clear the details of your sin. And so that's one way that when the law comes in, sin increases. But the second way that the law increases sin is actually by causing us to sin more. You see, when God says, thou shalt not, our flesh doesn't like that. Our sin nature doesn't like that. We are naturally rebellious against God. And so when the law of God encounters our sinful flesh, guess what the result is? Surprise, surprise, it's sin. Increased sin. And there's more on that in more detail in chapter 7, and we'll go over it when we get there. So sin increases. Sin has some victory. You might even say that sin has great victory. But then we see a better victory, an even greater one. Let's keep reading. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's interesting, those words you see there, increased and abounded, are both words that mean to grow, to, to become more. But the second word there, abounded, has the Greek prefix that you may recognize, huper. Huper. It sounds a lot like our English prefix, hyper. A prefix that we add to cause something to increase, right? Put it into hyperdrive. Your kids are pretty active. My three boys are hyperactive. And so, this emphasis is there to take it to the next level, to show that grace one-ups sin. Sin increases, but grace hyper-increases. Sin super-increases. As far as your sin to reach, grace reached just as far and further still. As high as your sin was piled up, grace reached those heights and reached higher still. So, we're beginning to see the better victory of grace, but Paul's not done. Let's read verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also, also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, sin reigns in death, but grace also reigns leading to eternal life. And here again, we see the contrast between death and life. And as we've seen, though, death is stoppable. Death can be limited. Death can be defeated. 
But here, life is called eternal life, everlasting life, forever life. The life given through Jesus Christ our Lord is unstoppable, unlimited, and undefeatable. If you're granted life in Christ, it is eternal life. You see, Jesus broke the power of sin and death, but the converse is not true. Sin and death cannot break the power of Jesus Christ. Did you guys catch that? Jesus broke the power of sin and death, but sin and death cannot and can never break the power of Jesus Christ. His power is greater. The ultimate victory belongs to Jesus. And isn't this the victory that we've been seeing this whole time in this passage? How Jesus is better, Jesus is greater and more powerful than the sin of Adam. So let's just take a step back and read some of these verses once again with a bird's eye view. Pay attention this time to just how Paul is describing grace. Verse 15, look with me. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear what this passage is saying about grace. Much more, abound for many, much more more abundance of grace abounded all the more this is the language that paul is using to describe grace and language that he is not using to describe sin and death abundance abounding do you see how paul is purposefully making this asymmetry between sin and grace do you see how he's purposefully making these two things imbalanced giving more weight to grace Yes, of course, there's parallelism in this passage. Yes, it's Jesus, Adam, life, death, grace, sin. But don't miss how Paul is tipping the scales to throw the spotlight on Jesus. Don't miss how Paul puts a comma after Adam, but puts an exclamation point next to Jesus. Grace is the last word of this passage. Jesus gets the final word in this passage. Adam is off the stage, and in the spotlight is Jesus Christ and his grace. Sin gets some victory, but Jesus gets the better victory. Through his death, Christ shows us more grace than you'll ever need. If your sin increases, grace hyper-increases. Grace is more powerful than sin. Sin drowns in an ocean of God's grace. As we sang, my sin thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, my sins, they are many. His mercy 
is more. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Not grace that is equal to all our sin. Not grace that just covers all our sin, but grace that is greater than all our sin. Guys, there's a lot of meat in this passage. There's a lot of theology in this passage, and I'm sure you lost me a few times in this text. But hear me now. Hear the summary of this passage. You want to know what Romans 5, 12 to 21 is all about? You want to get the main point of this passage? Here it is. Adam ain't got nothing on Jesus. Adam ain't got nothing on Jesus. And it's when we understand that this grace in Jesus Christ super abounds to us, just how much grace we have in Christ, that's when we will grow as Christians. Because the, the most solid, most godly, most sanctified Christians throughout history, and the most godly, sanctified, holy Christians in this room today are those who understand just how bad their sin is. Uh, just how heinous and odious their sin is to God. But they turn to the cross and find grace that is greater than all their sins. And they find that the, the aroma of grace is sweeter than the stench of sin. And the, the beauty of grace outshines the ugliness of sin. Those who run the hardest in the Christian life are those who understand just how dark the darkness is and thus appreciate the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be said of all of us tonight.